Well, good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Like Andrew said, my name's Elliot. And um, today we are continuing a series called Come and See, where we're, we're taking the title of the series from something um, that both Jesus says and then one of his early followers says in John um, chapter 1. And in this series, we are looking at the various ways that people both come and see and then decide to follow Jesus. And so today what we're going to do is we are going to look at how God uses bridges, relationship bridges, bridges that are um, involve trust, how he uses those to help people come to know who he is. Now, we all know the function of a bridge. A bridge is a pathway that goes over a gap or an obstacle, and it allows us to go where we couldn't go before. And we appreciate bridges. I mean, just this week, uh, my family and I, we were hanging out at the beach, and my son, my little three-year-old, asked me, um, well, he's almost three. He turns three next month. But we, uh, we were going to the, bridge, or to the beach, and we had to cross a bridge to get there. And as we were crossing the bridge, he asked, Dad, why is there a bridge here? And so I explained to him, oh, well, there's this bridge because it allows us to go to the beach. And aren't you glad that somebody built that bridge? He was like, yeah, I love the beach, you know. So then, you know, we all understand that bridges are important, and we appreciate having bridges. But there aren't just physical obstacles and gaps that we face in life. There's also spiritual obstacles and gaps. There are separations and divides that keep people from coming to God. For some people, maybe the separation or the divide, maybe it's an idea separation. Maybe there's some idea in their mind that's separate than what God says. Maybe they think that who God is, maybe they have a wrong idea about who God is, or maybe they have you know, an inaccurate understanding of how to have a relationship with God and how to walk with Him. There's some kind of divide, there's a separation, and it's because of a false idea that they have. Maybe, for some people, maybe there's a fear obstacle. You know, maybe they think, well, you know, I, I know what the Bible says, but if I really start to follow God, I'll, I, I'll be disappointed in the end. I'll miss out on all the fun stuff, all the good stuff in life. I don't really want to follow him because I don't, I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to miss out. Maybe there's, there's some fear that they have. Something will happen if they decide to start following him. Or for other people, maybe Maybe the, the divide or the gap is maybe caused by guilt. Maybe there's, you know, some burden that they carry with them, and they think that, you know, God could never accept me. Because of what I've done, there's no way that God could ever, ever forgive me or love me. So there's this gap guilt that keeps them from making a decision to follow God. And the reality is, is all of us at one point have either had these or do have these, and it could be a lot of different things for different people. And so one of the things that God's going to do in order to help individuals cross over these gaps and these divides that they can't get past on their own, one of the things that God's going to do is he's going to use those who have already decided to follow him, and they've received help in their own life getting over their obstacles and hesitations. God's going to use those individuals to then build bridges so that more people beyond them, can then come to experience what they've experienced, can come and understand who Jesus is, come and see, and then have an opportunity to decide if they want to follow him. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the components involved in building bridges. There are several components involved in building bridges, and we're going to see how God uses these to help people cross the bridge and come and see who Jesus is. Now, the most recognizable bridge in our state is this bridge right here, the Golden Gate Bridge very well-known bridge. It's actually considered a modern wonder. If you've ever been up there to San Francisco and crossed over the bridge to kind of 
the scenic overlook places where everybody gathers and takes the pictures. You know that this bridge isn't just famous in California. It's actually famous all over the world because you've got tourists from all over the world gathered to take pictures looking at this bridge. This bridge is incredibly famous. But it's actually a pretty simple design. It's a suspension bridge. And suspension bridges, they've really, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of engineering and a lot of math and a lot of physics that goes into it. But there's really just three main components that make up a suspension bridge. The, you start with the towers. Towers are kind of the first part of the bridge. They're, they're the pieces that go up really, really high. And then they actually go down really deep. They've got to anchor to the bedrock to be able to withstand the different forces and hold up over time. And then in addition to the towers, you've got the cables that run across the bridge. And the cables have to be able to withstand a lot of tension. And then they hold up the deck of the bridge. And the deck is what allows people to cross over it, what makes the bridge functional. And all suspension bridges have these three main components. They've got the towers, the cables, and the deck. And what's interesting, when you study illustrations in the Bible of how God uses relationships, kind of relational bridges to help people come to know who he is, what you see is you see these three components in those stories throughout the Bible. You see that these bridges, these relationship bridges that God uses, they have towers, they have cables, and they have a deck, the same three main components. And so we're going to look at a story in John chapter 1, and we're going to, there's kind of two illustrations in John chapter 1, and we're going to see how this works, how God uses these bridges, and really how you and I can go about constructing these bridges. Now, a little context before we uh, jump into our passage, it's in John chapter 1. Before we dive in, a little backstory so you kind of can understand what's happening. There was a guy named John the Baptist, and he came before Jesus, and he kind of made everybody ready for Jesus. He said, hey, Jesus is coming. He's going to fix the problem of sin. He's going to restore our relationship with God the Father. So he's, he's announcing this good news, and he's proclaiming the way that Jesus is getting ready to show up. And people started to gather and listen to him. And one of the individuals who gathered to hear John the Baptist speak is named Andrew. And one day, Andrew and some other individuals are with John the Baptist, and Jesus walks by. And when John the Baptist sees him, he points at him, and he says, hey, that's the guy who's here to meet our biggest problem. He's, he's come to meet our biggest need. He's going to solve our biggest problem. So he points this out to these individuals, and Andrew and another guy, they hear this, and they've been kind of expecting this guy, Jesus, is going to arrive. They hear this, and they jump, off, jump up, and they take after Jesus, take off after him, and they stop him, and they say, hey, Jesus, can we, can we talk to you? We want to talk with you more about who you are and figure this out. So Jesus says, sure, let's you know, come along with me, and we'll, we'll sit down, and we'll have this conversation. So they sit down, and you can read the story for yourself, but they sit down, and they meet. And as a result of that conversation, we don't know what's said, but as a result of it, Andrew and this other individual say, okay, we're convinced that this guy is God, and we want to follow him. So they start to follow him. And then this is, we'll pick the story up there. So that's what's happened up until this point. We'll pick the story up, John chapter 1, starting in verse 40. It says this. It says, Andrew... Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him, his brother Simon Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, Come and see, said Philip. So in this 
this section of verses, what we have is we have two examples of individuals going and building bridges. The first one is a brother who goes and gets his brother. The other is a friend who goes and gets his friend. And in both of these examples, as we start to kind of unpack them and figure out what's going on here, we see those three main components of a bridge. We see the towers, we see the cables, and then we also see the deck of the bridge. So let's see how this works in these two illustrations and how we might learn from it in our own life. So if you want to build a bridge, if you want to build a suspension bridge, the first thing you need to do is construct the towers. Now the towers on the Golden Gate Bridge are massive. If you've ever been there or driven across the bridge, you know this to be true. You, you have a, some understanding of how big these towers are. I'm going to hit you with some fun facts just so you understand how, how impressive these things are. The, the towers are both almost 750 feet tall. I mean, they're incredibly tall. The foundation of the South Tower, which is actually out in the channel, it goes down over 100 feet so that they could anchor it into the bedrock. I mean, over 100 feet down in the water so they could anchor it. The, the weight of the towers is, I mean, it's just like, it's one of those numbers where you hear the number and it's like, I, I don't even, I can't even comprehend that number. But the weight is 88 million pounds, the combined weight of the towers. And you consider the fact that when they built these things, they were using advances in technology and steel to try to decrease the weight of them. And it's still 88 million pounds. So why is, this, why is this significant? Why is the height and the depth and then being anchored to the bedrock, and why is, the, why is the weight of these towers so significant? Well, the reason is, if the towers, if, the, if that's the first piece, and if they're poorly constructed, if they're not anchored to the bedrock, if they're not of the right height, if the steel isn't strong enough, well, then the rest of the work in constructing the bridge, it's just going to come apart over time. And when it comes to building bridges with other people, the towers between us and other people are who Jesus is. That's what gives strength to the bridge. Who Jesus is gives strength to the bridge. The stronger your relationship with Jesus, the stronger your understanding of who he is, the stronger that bridge between you and another person can be. And you see this in, in both examples in John chapter 1. You see this in both lives of those individuals. The first individual, Andrew, he says this about Jesus. This is a conclusion that he's come to. He refers to Jesus as the Messiah, and then John adds, that is the Christ. Now, the word, these, these are both titles. Messiah and Christ are both titles. The, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word. The word Christ is a Greek word. They translate, they mean the same thing. They both mean anointed one. Now, for you and I, we hear these titles, and they don't mean a lot to us. I mean, usually when we refer to Jesus, we refer to him as Jesus Christ. And some people who don't really understand who he is, they start to think, well, maybe Christ is like his last name. Maybe Jesus is the first name and Christ is the last name. But it's actually a title, and it's telling us who he is. And the people in the first century, the Jews of the first century, they would understand really well that, okay, if we're going to use the title Messiah or Christ to refer to this individual, then what we're saying is we believe he is God. And this was understood by everybody, even even at Jesus' trial, during kind of the first round of Jesus' trial, the high priest, you know, this is one of the accusations against him. The high priest says this, Matthew 26, he says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, everybody understood this at this period of time. This wasn't just something, you know, you kind of casually threw around or said, oh, this person's the Messiah, I believe this person's the Christ. This was a really, really big deal. This was a claim that if you said somebody was the Messiah, then everybody understood what you were saying is, 
you're saying that this individual standing in front of me is the creator of the universe, God in flesh, standing in front of you. That's what you really believe. So when, when Andrew goes and gets his brother Peter and says, hey, we found the Messiah, what he's saying to his brother is, hey, we found God. you got to come meet him. He had an understanding that Jesus was God. And it's actually the same thing for Philip, the other individual in the story. Philip goes and tells his friend Nathaniel, and when Philip goes, what he says this, this is who he understood Jesus to be. He said, the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Now, again, this, you know, to us, this, that might not hold a lot of weight, but to a Jew in the first century, this is really significant. Because what they had is they had what's referred to as the Hebrew Scriptures, the first 39 books of the Bible, actually what we call the Old Testament. And these first 39 books, they were written over a period of about 1,000 years, from the first book being written to when the last book was written. These 39 separate books. And they, they detail the history of Israel. And all through this history of Israel where God would speak and he would show up and he would, he would have them write stuff down, they could look back at this history and they could actually trace their family lineage back to people that were included in this story. So they knew that this was true. They knew that this wasn't just, you know, made up some fantasy about some people that lived a really long time ago somewhere else. This was their story. And they knew that God had showed up time and time again. And they knew that all through the story, God had been saying, hey, I'm going to come and I'm going to solve the problem of sin. So he started recording that through Moses. And then from Moses, the, the message went through the prophets and they're the ones that wrote the rest of the books. And so you have you have over a thousand years of history of this nation, these people, their history of God interacting with them saying, hey, I'm going to show up and I'm going to solve the problem of sin. And when I do show up, I'm going to predict, I'm going to tell you, here's how you will know it was, is me. So when I show up, I'm going to, I'm going to meet all these different criteria and qualifiers. So when, when Philip goes to his friend Nathaniel and he says, hey, we found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about, what he's really saying to his friend is, hey, there's all this evidence that points to the fact that this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, that he's the one who was promised to come for thousands of years. He's saying, hey, we found God, and I've got evidence to back it up. And this is, a, this is not an insignificant claim that he's going with. He had a very firm understanding of who Jesus is. So you sit down, and you start to unpack this, and you start to consider the titles that are used and these claims that are made. You realize that both of these individuals both Andrew and Philip, they understood that Jesus was God. It wasn't like they had just hung out with him and they had some like strong preference, you know, because they really liked the guy. Or maybe it was just, you know, well, it's my opinion. I mean, it's kind of a loosely held opinion, but it's my opinion. No, it's like, hey, we can back this up. There's evidence that points to this being the reality. And that's something really important for, for us to understand is there is a ton of evidence that points to who Jesus is. And so, you know, something I would encourage you, if you're, you know, if you're here today and you are trying to figure out who Jesus is, I really encourage you to investigate the facts for yourself. Sit down and look at the proof. Sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes people think that to become a Christian, kind of what you do is you just kind of close your eyes and you flip off your brain and then you kind of blindly and mindlessly start walking through life. Sometimes people think that that's really kind of the Christian approach, and that could not be further from the truth. Because if you're going to come to understand who Jesus is, what that's going to require you to do is open up your eyes and turn on your brain and start sifting through the evidence and really thinking about this stuff. Could this be true? 
What are the implications if this is true? If he's God and he showed up and he said that I'm supposed to do this, what are the implications for me? If I'm a created being and he's my creator, what does that mean for my life? And you, you've got to turn on your brain and start thinking about this stuff. And so if you're, you know, if you're at the point where you're just kind of like, you know, I don't know, I'm kind of on the fence, I would really encourage you to examine the facts. And one of the great places to start is just start in the Bible. You know, the first four books of the New Testament, the New Testament is kind of like, kind of tells the story of Jesus' arrival and then the church getting started. The first four books are biographies about Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I would just start by reading those four biographies. Actually, if you don't have a Bible, we got free Bibles here today. There's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. There's Bibles outside on the patio. You know, and then there's, there's additional resources to look at. There's more evidence than just what's found in the books that make up the Bible. There's, there's archaeology, there's history, there's additional sources. You start to add all this up, and it, there's a lot of material. So actually, there's a book out on the patio. I'd encourage you to grab it. It's called More Than a Carpenter. If you're trying to figure out, okay, who is Jesus? What's the evidence? Do the work. Turn, open up your eyes, turn on your mind, and examine for yourself. I mean, there will come a point where you do have to take a step of faith. You know, it, it, it does involve faith, but it's not, a, it's not a blind, mindless faith. It's faith based on, okay, there's a lot of evidence pointing to this being true. There's a lot more evidence for this than there is for the other stuff over here that people claim they believe. You know, so based on the evidence okay, I'm going to take the step of faith and I'm going to actually do what he says to do. It, w- it does come to a point where you've got to take a step of faith, but there's a lot of evidence. So just like these two guys, I would encourage you to get the facts. For Andrew and Philip in the story, Jesus wasn't just some fun fact to remember for trivia night. It wasn't just something to, you know, impress their friends with their knowledge. No, this was a life-shaping truth when they discovered who he really is. It's the same for us. There's another guy in the Bible by the name of Paul, and he discovered the same thing that Andrew and Philip did, and he wrote this. He says this in 2 Corinthians, a letter he wrote to a, an early church. He says this. He says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, he's saying, hey, though we once regarded Christ in the way that everybody else does, we've become convinced of who he really is, so we don't view him that way anymore. We don't view him the way that everybody else does. I mean, a lot of people, they look at Jesus and people that don't follow him, and they think, oh, you know, yeah, he was, you know, he was maybe a historical guy, they'll say, even though there's a ton of evidence that shows that he was. But they'll say, well, you know, he was, you know, he was a good teacher. Or, or some people now say, like, you know, he, he had all these political ambitions, and they just made up all the supernatural stuff so that he would get more attention. You know, but if you're going to decide to follow him, like Paul says, if you're going to become convinced, if you're going to be his follower, there's, there's certain things you've got to be convinced of. You've got to be convinced that he is God. You've got to be convinced that he came in a body just like yours and mine, and that he died to solve the problem of sin. You've got to be convinced that he did rise from the grave. You know, it's not just some fairy tale, but no, that is an actual historical event that happened. He rose from the grave, proving that he has power over death and can give life even in death. You've got to become convinced of these things, just like these individuals. So if you've decided to follow him, just like Paul says here, he says, hey, we're convinced of this. We're convinced that this is true. If, if you're a follower of his, what you're saying is, hey, I'm convinced that this is true. 
But something that you've probably experienced in your life, because I know I've experienced in my life, is you become convinced of this. You realize, okay, I believe Jesus is God. I believe that he, he came in a body just like mine. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. I believe all that's true. And then you set off and you start following him. But something interesting happens over time as you follow him. You, you've got this right perspective on him at the beginning. And then over time, you kind of start to drift. And you can, can, can very easily kind of drift back into your old way of thinking about Jesus. And so you're, you're, you're setting off and you're like, you know, yeah, I'm going to follow him. And then over time, you kind of realize, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not actually interacting with him as though he is the only solid foundation and he's the only one that can hold life together. I'm, you know, I'm kind of interacting with him, you know, as if he's kind of an add-on piece to life. Kind of like, you know, kind of like an accessory. Sometimes we'll do that. We'll kind of view him and we'll say, yeah, I know what he says in the Bible is important and stuff, but I don't really have to take it that seriously. You know, I can kind of pick and choose what I'm going to do. And we'll start to interact with him, and, and we'll treat him like an accessory. And it's kind of like this watch I have on him. And it's a nice watch. It's got a lot of nice features on it. But, I mean, let's face it. I've got other watches. I could have worn another watch today. If I didn't wear a watch and I got up here on stage, you wouldn't be like, oh, he doesn't have a watch on. What's going on? No, I mean, I would have made it through the day just fine. I've got my phone in my pocket. You know, I've got a clock back there in the back. I could ask other people what time it is. I mean, I could make it through the day without a watch. Sometimes we'll kind of interact with Jesus like that. He's just kind of this... He's this add-on feature. He's an accessory. I mean, yeah, you know, he's God. He saved me, but I can kind of pick and choose when I do what he says to do. And the reality is, is if we're interacting with him like that, if we're treating him as though he's an add-on or an accessory, that means that the bridge that we build with other people is going to be a really weak bridge. Because of these, it's not going to have these large towers with a solid foundation. It's going to be a bridge made up of accessory parts. And that never makes a strong bridge. I mean, for me, I've got this friend, and you know, we still hang out from time to time, but a few years ago, we were hanging out a lot. And we were spending time together, and you know, on the surface, my friend, he's, he's got a pretty good life. I mean, he's a pretty happy guy. He's got a lot of things that he wants. You know, he's pretty content. He's not a Christian. He'll tell you that. You know, he's pretty open about it. And I started thinking, okay, I really, I want to tell my friend about Jesus. I mean, I'm a Christian. I want to help other people become Christians. I want them to experience what I'm experiencing. So I was thinking about, okay, how do I tell my friend about Jesus? And then this thought went through my head, and the thought was, I don't know if Jesus will make his life any better. And what I realized was instead of considering the foundation that my friend was building his life on, and instead of considering the the implications that my friend would face if he doesn't figure out who Jesus is, I just started viewing Jesus as an accessory, and I viewed my friend's life and thought, well, what, what good is another accessory going to do him? I mean, he seems like a pretty happy guy. So actually, for me, then, I was really passive and hesitant to say anything about faith, because in my own life, I was treating Jesus like he was an add-on. So then when I tried to build a bridge to somebody else to tell them about Jesus, I was building a really weak bridge. I mean, strong towers are not constructed from accessory pieces. Jesus is not an accessory. And the reality that we've got to remember is the wealthiest, happiest, most successful person in the world is headed for a disaster if they don't figure out who Jesus is and get their relationship with him sorted out. That's the reality. He is God. He is the only one that will hold life together. He's the one who rose from the grave, giving life out of death. He's the only one that can save us. He's proved this. And so for us, when it comes to building bridges, the tower of the bridge, really the piece that holds it all together, 
is who Jesus is. If we interact with him as though he's an accessory, our bridge with other people is going to be a really weak bridge. For both Andrew and Philip in the story, they realized that Jesus was God, and because of that reality, they built a bridge based on that. The tower between, that, that holds up the bridge between us and others is who Jesus is. Now, after the towers, it's the first component, the towers. After you build the towers, the next component that you want to focus on is the cables. Now, the cables are what run across the bridge. And what's interesting about the Golden Gate Bridge is the towers of the Golden Gate, or the cables of the Golden Gate Bridge are actually made up of thousands of individual wires. And they took six months just running these individual wires back and forth across the bridge over and over and over again in order to construct the cables that we now see. Then they wrapped them up, and they painted them, and they put them together, and now they're strong enough to hold up the deck of the bridge. But it took a long time. Now, in the bridge between us and other people that God uses to help people come to know him, the cables are made up of trust. Over time, as we interact with people, individual interactions, it's as if we're sending little wires across that bridge, across that divide, and those are, those are adding up to make the cables to make something strong enough that can hold the freight of an individual crossing that bridge. It's trust that forms the cables on the bridge. Again, back to the story from John 1. Let's see how this works out in these individual lives. The first individual, Andrew, he goes and tells his Peter brother. He says, hey, we've, he tells his uh, brother Peter that, hey, we found the Messiah. Now, something that's interesting about Andrew and Peter that we know about them, not only are they brothers, but they're also in business together. They're business partners. Now, I don't know about you, um, I have never gone into business with a sibling, but I have worked at a few family-owned companies, and I know in order for the company to be successful over an extended period of time when you go into business with siblings, there's got to be a lot of trust. I mean, I've been in a few companies where it was family-owned, and it went south pretty quick because there wasn't a lot of trust. But if you're going to go into business with a sibling and it's going to be successful, there's got to be a lot of trust. So for Andrew to go into business with Peter, I mean, not only are they brothers, so they probably know more about each other than anybody else, but they've got to really trust each other for this business to work and for it to be successful. And it was that trust that Andrew had developed with his brother Peter that allowed, when he extends the invitation and says, hey, why don't you come and check out who Jesus is? We found the Messiah. It was the trust that set up the opportunity for the introduction between Peter and Jesus. It was trust that allowed him to get across the bridge. It held it up. The other bridge builder in the story is Philip. Philip is pretty interesting. He goes and he tells his friend Nathaniel. Now, in this one, we don't really know too much about how these guys know each other. But as you kind of read the story and you think of what's said and kind of the interchange that they have, you realize, there, okay, there had to be a lot of trust in order for them to navigate this. And it's pretty interesting what, what ends up happening. Philip goes and he tells Nathaniel, and then check out what Nathaniel says. It's kind of a skeptical, sarcastic response. He says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Now, Nazareth was this kind of middle-of-nowhere town. It was one of those towns that if you're, like, planning a family road trip, it's one of those towns, it might have a few hotels, might even have a gas station, but as you look at it on a map, you're like, yeah, well, let's not stop there. Let's get to the next major city. Let's try to avoid having to stop in that town. That's kind of what Nazareth was. So, so Nathaniel hears about, hey, Jesus from Nazareth, and his first reaction is what a lot of people's first reaction would have been, which is like, seriously? Is this a joke? Nazareth. 
that middle of nowhere town, nothing good can come from that town. And what's interesting is his skeptical hesitation. It's really similar to a lot of people's initial response when they hear about Jesus or about church. I mean, for a lot of people, when you start talking to them about Jesus or church, or you identify as a Christian, well, one of the first images that's going to pop in their head is a picture of this guy, Ned Flanders, from The Simpsons. I mean, you know, he's a nice guy, but he's just weird. And you don't want to hang out with this guy. You know, or if they don't think of Ned Flanders, maybe they think of Kevin or Kenneth from 30 Rock. You know, this kind of, he's a sheltered guy, but he's really, really, really naive about how the world works, and he's just really annoying. He's so positive. Like, he's positive about everything. Even when terrible stuff happens, he's just always got that stupid smile on his face. So they just think, oh, man, this is what Christians must be like. Or if it's not Ned Flanders or Kenneth, then maybe, you know, maybe Christians are like, maybe like Angela from The Office. I mean, she's just, she's mean, let's face it. She's really mean. She's judgmental. She expects you to follow all the rules, but does she follow the rules? No, she doesn't practice what she preaches. I mean, she's very hypocritical. So a lot of people, they hear you start talking about Jesus or hear you start talking about church, and these images are going to pop in their mind. And let's face it, these stereotypes are successful because there's quite a few Christians out there who actually live this way. You know, they're, you know, yeah, they're really nice, but no, I would never, I would never hang out with them, you know? Or it's like, man, they are so annoying, most annoying people I've ever met in my life, you know? And so these, these stereotypes, actually, some people have interaction with people that backs this up. So it makes sense that some people would respond the same way Nathaniel did and say, Nazareth, Jesus, church, seriously, on Sunday, there's no way I'm going to go to that. It makes sense. But then, check out what Philip says. Philip simply says, he doesn't respond, he doesn't argue, he doesn't defend himself, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't snap back at him, he just says, hey, why don't you come see? Why don't you check it out? And guess what Nathaniel does? He goes and he checks it out. Now, if you think about it, if you, if you, you know, you can just kind of read through that really quickly, but if you pause and think about it, you realize, okay, how do you go from this skeptical response, can anything good come from there? to in a short amount of time becoming a follower. And if there had to be a lot of trust, again, we don't know how these guys knew each other, but for Philip to go and give the invitation and then Nathaniel respond, go from skeptic to follower in a short amount of time, he had to really trust his friend. And that's something that I hear over and over again as people share about how they came to know Jesus. Something I hear over and over again is, you know what? I, you know, I was like, you know, church is weird, man. If I go to church, they're probably going to like do something weird to me and they're going to try to take all my money and they're going to ask me to do these things that I don't want to do. And there's no way I'm going to church. There's no way, you know, or you know, Christians are weird or, you know, Jesus, it's fantasy. That's, that's fantasy stuff. That's the same as like Cinderella. It's not real. But then they say, okay, that, that was my initial response. But then my friend who I really trust said, well, why don't you come with me? Or then my friend, who I really enjoy spending time with, I started to see their life change. They became a Christian, and suddenly their life started changing, and then I was like, I, I want that. I, I see that change, and I want that change in my life, too. Or I joined them, and I went to something going on at their church, and as a result of that, I said, wow, this, actually, I really like this. I want to be a part of this. Again and again, what I hear is individuals who move from a skeptic to a follower— and what helped them get across 
with somebody that they really trusted. Somebody who they really trusted and they knew well helped them cross the gap. You know, if Nathaniel in the story, if he was going to meet Jesus, someone had to help him get past his inaccurate idea. Someone who he trusted had to walk him across the bridge. It's trust that forms the cables on the bridge. Now, we're not done building the bridge yet. There's still one final piece. After you build the towers and the cables, there's still more work to constructing the bridge. And I don't know if you've ever seen this picture. This is a fairly famous picture of the Golden Gate Bridge. Pretty cool picture, too. You've got the towers in place. You've got the cables. But something's missing. The deck. Nobody can cross the bridge. I mean, it would be, it would be cool. It would be really impressive, you know, if they would have just left this there and they've got the towers in place. And, you know, people still probably would gather, you know, really, you know, you could say it's art, you know, kind of like a modern art. What's it for? It's like point, it's a pointless bridge. I don't know. But, I mean, you could probably come up with a reason. But it, it doesn't serve its purpose. Nobody can cross it. You know, a ton of work has gone into constructing the towers. A ton of work and time has built these impressive cables that can handle the tension. But there's no deck. Nobody can cross the bridge. The deck that God uses in the relationship bridge to help people come to know who he is is the invitation. The deck is the invitation to come and see. Now, I'll say for me, this is the most challenging part of the bridge-building process, extending the invitation. I've got some friends who, this is just easy for them. You know, it's like we'll be hanging out and, you know, all of a sudden out of nowhere, they're talking to somebody over here about Jesus or they're encouraging somebody over here to reconnect at church or to try something out. And it's just like, it's effortless, it's easy. But for me, it's not like that. For me, it's either, you know, either one thing that'll happen is, you know, it's after the fact that I'll think, oh, I should have said something. Oh, I should have asked the question. Oh, I should have invited them. I mean, even, even this last week, I, I was talking to somebody, and I was talking to them for a while, and after, after we were done talking, we'd kind of gone our separate ways. I was like, why didn't I say anything? You know, so it's either after the fact, or if it's in the moment, I don't know about you, but if it's in the moment, you know, I'll kind of, I'll see the opportunity, and I'll take the risk, and I'll start talking about Jesus, or ask a question about faith, and it, then all of a sudden, it just gets really awkward and strange. I mean, it's like the conversation was going along smooth and everything was fine, and then all of a sudden it just kind of comes to this like grinding, awkward halt. And I don't know about you, but I don't really like feeling awkward. So the invitation for me, it's tough, which is one of the reasons that I really appreciate the fact that Paul, one of the guys who started a lot of the churches in the New Testament, he writes this in Ephesians chapter 6. He asks for prayer on this topic. Ephesians 6, 19, he says, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. If you think about the guy who's writing this, this is Paul. His whole job is traveling around telling people about Jesus. I mean, if you would think of one person, I mean, this guy is like a superhero in this category. But what does he say? What does he ask prayer for? That I will fearlessly make known. He brings up fear. I mean, even he struggled with this. This like, superhero at sharing his faith is saying, hey, I, there are times where I struggle with fear. And I really appreciate that because I wrestle with that too. I have the thoughts go through my head. Will this bridge hold? Is this all going to fall apart? If I put this out there and I start sharing with this person, is this person going to, are they going to judge me? Are they going to want nothing to do with me? Are they going to think that I'm, that I'm condemning them, that I'm narrow-minded? What's going to happen if I open my mouth and start talking about this? 
And what Paul does, he's, he experiences the same thing we all do. What Paul does is he goes to another group of people and he says, hey, would you pray for me? You know that he was praying for himself as well, but then he includes other people and it says, hey, would you pray for me too? And he goes to God and he says, hey, God, would you, would you give me the words to say? Would you help me push through the fear? And that's the same thing we need to do. Go to God and say, hey, God, would you, would you help me know what to say? Would you help me see the opportunity? Would you help me not allow my fear of awkwardness become more important than them hearing the good news of who Jesus is? God, would you help me to extend an invitation? And when I do, would you allow them to hear it as, as though it's coming from a place of love, which it is, and not judgment? Go to God and ask him for help. Ask other people to join you and pray for you to be able to do this. Because something that I've realized in my own life, and I know from experience, it is really easy to stop the bridge building process before the invitation is in place. It is really easy to build a very impressive structure with towers that are huge and built on who Jesus is and cables that run across the divide that are built on trust and years of trust sometimes, but there's no invitation. There's no deck on the bridge, which means the other person is not going to come across to see who Jesus is. For you and me, so something we can do in the face of, I struggle with that. Start asking God for help. Start asking God to help you push through that fear so that the other person can come to know what you know and come to experience what you've experienced. So for those of you who've decided to follow Jesus, a question that I want to ask you is, who are the people in your life that helped you cross the bridge? Who are the people in your life that built the bridge, they took the time, they had a firm grasp of who Jesus was? Who are those people in your life that helped you cross the bridge? For me, it was primarily my parents, but my older brother actually really helped too. And I'm really glad that they did. I'm glad they had a firm grasp on who Jesus is. I'm glad that they took the time to show me how to follow him just in the routines of everyday life. I'm glad that my brother actually asked me questions about, hey, do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to give your life to him? Do you, want to, do you want to know more about what he says to do? I'm glad that they took those risks. So for you, who are those people that helped you cross the bridge? And then at the same time, who are those people that helped you cross the bridge? Another question I want to ask you is, who are those people that God has put you around that you can then be the bridge builder to? Who are those people, whether it's maybe it's a neighbor that you know, or maybe it's a family member who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, or a coworker? Who are those people God's put you around who you can build a bridge to? Because, see, one of, our, one of our dreams here at Seabreeze is we want to be a church full of people who build bridges of God's love to our community. And it says you and I do that as we go and build bridges with the people around us, and we we personally have a firm grasp of this is who Jesus is and this is how he wants me to live. And then we use that as the foundation for building a bridge to another person as we interact with them and relate in real life and build trust with them. And then as we end up extending the invitation, maybe, you know, maybe the invitation isn't even an invitation to come to church. Maybe it's just a simple, you know, maybe you start talking to them, you realize, hey, they're really struggling in this area of their marriage. Maybe the invitation is, you know, my wife and I tried this out and it really helped us. What if you guys tried that too? You know, maybe it's just principles from the Bible that you're introducing them to so they can kind of get a feel for, oh, this stuff actually makes sense. This stuff is practical. You know, maybe that's the starting point. But you're extending this invitation, giving them an opportunity to cross over the bridge. As you and I do that, more and more people are going to come to know who Jesus is and experience what we're experiencing.
the change in the new life that we're experiencing. You know, something Bevan highlighted last week that I want to highlight again this week is this barbecue box. And this is, we created these just to give you guys an opportunity, a little incentive to go and do this, a little help. Just have people over. It's the end of the summer. Have people over. Have a barbecue. Get together. There's something in this box that when we use it, I'm really excited about using because I've never seen anyone do this. There are these uh, Seabreeze Church coasters. And I'm really excited about this because, see, I struggle with the invitation part. So I'm kind of looking forward. I'm hoping that, you know, I'll just, like, have some of these out, and, you know, people will set their drinks on them. Somebody will be like, what? Wait, what is this? Just a, this is probably the easiest way to identify with a church at a barbecue that I could think of. But it's just a little help. This box is full of good ideas. It's got some recipes. It's got some seasoning mixes in there. The whole goal is just get together with people and start to build trust. If the opportunity is there for you to identify as a Christian or you to invite them to something or you to share your faith, hey, take that opportunity. Build the deck of the bridge. Let them decide if they want to cross it and come and see who Jesus is. But the bridge is built as you and I take him seriously, as we interact with them and build trust, and then as we extend the invitation so that they can come and see. For both of the individuals in the story of John 1, Simon Peter and Nathaniel, they found their way to Jesus by crossing the bridge that their friends and that their brother had built. It's the same thing for you and me. We've got the same opportunity. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for all of the examples all throughout your word so that you give us a picture of what this can look like in our lives. And I thank you for the fact that the bridge that we're building is not a bridge to nowhere, but it's a bridge to real life. It's a bridge to a life that starts now and then gets better for all of eternity. I thank you for that reality. It's a bridge that repairs our relationship with you and solves the problem of sin. So Jesus, I thank you that you're the one that came and did that work, and then I thank you that we then get to be builders who go and help other people experience the same thing. I pray that you would help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.